You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. To episode 153 of the Sports Therapy Association podcast. My name is Matt Phillips, creator of Munchup Live. And in case you're listening to the podcast, just so you know, it's recorded live on the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel, 8 p.m. every Tuesday, um, and has been done now for the last 153 weeks. Um, so if you listen to the podcast, uh, thank you very much. Be sure to leave a rating or a review. Um, but if you'd like to actually join us live, then that's all you need to do. Go along to the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel, 8 o'clock any Tuesday, and it'll give you the chance to ask questions directly to our marvellous guests and also hang out with people who are joining us live. For example, they're coming through the door already. Sarah Fluitt says, hi. When people do leave comments or questions, then I can bring them up onto the screen. And it's a lovely way to share your logo, maybe, or in this case, picture of a loved one looking through a great rubber ring. And um, thanks, Sarah. Good to see you. Glenn Murphy is in the room as well. Glenn Murphy says, evening all. Looking forward to this one. Aren't we all? It's been a fantastic month so far. And the focus is nutrition, which um, has been requested by you guys. What we typically do is we try and choose a focus which will last a month. So it's got more of a shelf life. People talk about the first episode and then suddenly gain some interest and people will come back. And so there is definitely a um, a segue from one episode to the other. Talking of which, last week in part one, I had the pleasure of talking to Nick Pollard, who is um, a director of Family Mental Wealth. A lovely reason why he chose those words. It's, 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 it's fantastic. I very much encourage you to listen to this if you're interested in tonight's um, topic. Um, he's also the co-author of the Oxford Specialist Handbook on Eating Disorders. Um, and he told about um, the story of his family um, and his daughter and how um, with her suffering from anorexia, they realized the sparsity of information, misinformation out there. And now they've created, well, first the book came, the website and the book, um, and then also an e-learning course, um, which I, I was telling him again afterwards is far too cheap. Um, and I'm definitely calling things out. But I think they are too cheap because there's so much expensive and a little bit of waste of money out there, in my opinion. But anyway, so if you are interested in the Eating Disorders E-Learning for Health Professionals course, which is presented by his daughter, Dr. Elizabeth McMort, together with Professor Janet Treasure, then there is a 50% discount code for STA members. Um, for the first 100 members who contact Gary at the sta.co.uk. So instead of, I think, 75 quid, which is ridiculous for the information they're giving you, and it goes down to like £32.50 or something. So if you are interested in that course, and I do highly recommend, we've had people from the STO done it already and just seen, thinking, well, that's just a necessity. That's something everyone needs to know about. It'll introduce you to a whole load of eating disorders, how to recognise, how to communicate, how to listen, how to help that person within your scope of practice, how to know when to refer on. And a huge wealth of information that everybody, any of you who work with people, I think is all of you, should know. And um, so that's available on YouTube and also on all popular podcast apps. And it's a marvellous segue into tonight's topic, which is going to be relative energy deficiency in sport, also known as REDS or REDS. Um, a lot of you have been asking about this topic as soon as you heard that nutrition was the focus this month. So, oh, you're going to do something on REDS. So you know about it or do you? Um, I'm very excited that we're going to bring up um, physiotherapist and ex-international athlete, Lucy Gilbank. See, I've done it already. Straight away, I was saying it's Gilbanks. 
Oh, foy. Anyway, Lucy Gilbanks with a gur, a hard gur. Can't believe it's done that. Lucy Gilbanks is going to be coming up um, and talking about um, the two um, studies which she did as part of her research, which gained international acclaim, very deservedly so, um, which are all about relative energy deficiency in sport. We've been talking off air, it's going to be a fascinating hour. And as always, people in the live lounge, you are here um, to ask questions. You are here to make the most of this hour and ask Lucy anything you want to about the topic. So do feel free to bring them up as and when. So I think that's all I need to say before I can now bring up Lucy Gilbanks. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Hello, thank you. Thank you for having me. No, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, I told you I'd do it, didn't I? I told you I'd do it. <laughs> At least unpredictable. So, yeah, thank you very much for giving up your time. Thank you. Um, I've been, we were talking a little bit off air. Anybody who works with athletes will, I say that, will hopefully be familiar with Red, with Reds or Red S. It's a word which we should all know about, but there's a Jürgen um, kindly um, revealed to us. There's an awful lot we don't know or misinformation. We don't understand the implications of it. So, First thing I'd like to do is how come it became your speciality? So it was something that I initially came across in my third year of university. So when I was at uni, I was studying my BSc in physio. And as I was in my third year, we were all kind of looking at topics on what we wanted to research our dissertation on. So at the time, I had no idea what I wanted to do my dissertation on. Just started getting a feel of things and started to do a little bit of research just through uh, Google Scholar, basically, initially. And I came across an article on the female athlete triad, as it was originally known. So it was originally developed, well, the actual syndrome in itself, female athlete triad was first noticed in 1992. Um, so at that point, I, at this point, when I was looking through the symptoms, I was only really aware that the symptoms could be prevalent in women. And as I was reading some of the symptoms, I actually recognised that within myself and within my teammates, who won't specifically mention any names or anything, but within my teammates and within my friends, we had a lot of these symptoms. So disordered eating, having uh, reoccurring injuries or illnesses, having troubles with our periods, whether that be menstrual dysfunction or amenorrhea altogether, um, and low energy availability. So basically feeling very fatigued and lack of concentration. So all of these symptoms in myself started to resonate with myself. But up until this point, I hadn't actually heard anything about it. So I'd I'd been rowing at this point for probably 10 10 years. Um, And we'd done national competitions, we'd done box competitions, we'd rowed for, uh, I think we may have been rowing for, we had rowed for England and we had done uh, GB universities. So we had done some international regattas. And up until this point, no one had really discussed the term female athlete triad or if someone had ever brought up not having periods or anything it was kind of like not really spoken about other than that it's considered sometimes normal for girls to lose their period so it wasn't really something that we ever really spoke about or kind of dwelled on and it became more of a thing within my friends and within my teammates that it was normal for us to feel low energy and to be to be feel hungry and we actually named our boat which the boat in which we rode we actually named it hangry because we were all very hungry angry little rowers um so it almost became just a bit of a joke and a bit of something that was expected within lightweight rowing as i started blows my mind i've got to interrupt here i apologize because it's just i'm I'm hoping that this blows the mind of the listeners as much as it's done to me because you're saying you've been rowing for 10 years you're Mm -hmm. at national international level and when you say no one talked about it so you guys are getting injured you're you're probably 
come across as quite irritable. No one can keep up a brave face for that long training and stuff. And it just wasn't... So does that suggest the link wasn't made? Didn't whoever was looking after you and trying to make sure you weren't injured, didn't someone go, oh, actually, this could be an example of... Yeah, so I was a sports scholar at my university as well. So I supposedly should have had more... um, uh, should have had more information given to me than someone who wasn't a sports scholar, but it was never ever discussed by anyone who was considered my lifestyle coach or my, my strength and conditioning coach or the physio or anything there. And whether that was just because no association was made or whatever, I don't know, maybe they did or didn't have the knowledge. I don't know, but it was never brought up to me until I kind of literally stumbled upon this article. Um, and it was never, it was never brought up at any workshops or anything that we went to um, with British rowing or anything. Um, so it was it was just by chance that I actually came across it. And as I was doing more of my research, I then actually came across the term REDS. So again, it was just kind of like stumbled upon it. I hadn't didn't really ever make any connection. I then just initially when I started researching on the female triad, I thought, oh, it must just be women. But obviously, more and more research has come out and since 2014, which is still obviously very recent in terms of like development of understanding athletes. And athletes have been going for many, many years, many centuries. Um, and will have had some of these problems. It's only until 2014 was REDS actually diagnosed and was made more of a syndrome and something that people actually look off and take into consideration for things that men and women can also suffer with. Initially, I think those who had acknowledged that periods may, if, if girls lose periods and it's considered a normal thing, it was again just thought that it was just women. But I think then that leaves out a large portion of men who may also be suffering with symptoms, not necessarily menstrual, but low bone density. They may the girls have the advantage on men that they that we have the early warning signal that if we don't have a regular period or a regular cycle, that that is actually a warning signal that your body is not quite happy in that moment in time. Boys unfortunately don't have that, so we really need to be aware as therapists ourselves on knowing the signs and symptoms and knowing what questions to ask particularly for men and and for women, particularly for men, because they may only start to notice there's more of an issue when they've now got a reoccurring stress fracture or when they've got reoccurring injuries or illnesses that aren't getting better. And you start delving a little bit more into detail, whereas initially, if, you, if you're having early conversations with girls and you hear about them having menstrual dysfunction, which for everyone, it can be slightly different, but within terms of like diagnosis, in terms of uh, REDS or, or thematic triad, it's considered... Irregular periods are not having a period every month. And if they have amenorrhea, which essentially there's two parts of amenorrhea. So primary amenorrhea is someone who hasn't started their period by the age of 15. So if a, if a girl is under the age of 15, fine, it can still be normal. But if they're getting after 15, they haven't yet started the period, that is an early warning signal that something's not quite right. Um, and if a secondary amenorrhea is essentially someone who doesn't have a regular period for three months or more. Um, so particularly as therapists, we need to be making sure that we're asking these questions. And I think that... It's initially considered like a taboo or things that people don't really want to talk about or things people get embarrassed talking about. And stereotypically, men may find it more uncomfortable to talk about things like this with women. But it's it's something that we should really try and hopefully get rid of because it's it's such a key thing that we can identify early. And if you're seeing um, clients and people from a young age, you can try and notice these symptoms and, and ask them about these symptoms. So it becomes something that they're comfortable talking about with. So as they develop within their athletic career, they're comfortable talking about these types of symptoms and talk and comfortable talking about menstrual dysfunction and, and periods and things without it being something that is kind of considered normal for girls to suffer with in silence or something that should just not be discussed at all. Um, so yeah, that's my that's my background on how I came across Thematic Triad and Reds. Um, so then when I, once I'd done my um, dissertation, which initially when I started, like I say, it was on female triad. And by the time with the university, I'd started actually publish it. I'd started actually getting it, the works in motion for 
writing up my dissertation, it was kind of too late to change it to the on, on relative energy efficiency. So that's what then stemmed me to want to then do a master's and further research and not just segregate it to just be women, because I was now more aware that there is research out there about women. There's hardly any about men and particularly within my two areas, which is what I did my papers on, which is on the knowledge and awareness that physios have. Uh, up until I did my research, as far as I was aware, there was a gap in literature. No one had looked at that. And there was no recognition for men and women within the lightweight rowing setting. So that's why I then developed that as an area that I wanted to look into more. And not just the physical signs, but also the psychological symptoms, which we can go on to in a bit. But. Definitely. Um, yeah, we're going to go into have a look at both of those excellent papers you've done there. We'll make sure there's links in the show notes. Um, they're a real eye-opener. And obviously your sport, which we'll talk about in a second, the lightweight rowing. I think what you said already, it's, it's, it, it can be there in anybody who's doing a sport that could be pushing themselves. And it's, like you say, it's a bit of a taboo subject. But I think the other thing is people assume, and I apologise for kind of like imagining what's going to the heads of the listeners. But I think also there's this idea that, oh, surely they're coaches or they're trainers, or especially if they're kind of in club level yeah. and they've got people looking after, they would have covered that. I'm not going to talk about their menstrual cycle because someone's obviously mentioned that. They're a, you know, a national competitor. Yeah. But, you know, proof in the proof you're saying that, I don't know whether it's changed now, kind of years later on, but it's something which you could really, again, change that athlete's life just by bringing something up. A hundred percent. And I think that, again, it's something that initially, as, as even as physios or, or as, as anyone, we might think that actually maybe the doctors ask this question. But actually, a lot of the research that's out there at the moment, people, doctors, and there may, there may be some doctors who are, some doctors who aren't. But generally, there's a lot of lack of awareness. So if we can kind of get everyone on board with just knowing a little bit more, then we can all help to try and picture this or put this puzzle together. And it's not that anyone, no one's above anyone in this situation. There's no hierarchy in terms of who should be asking these questions and who should be trying to identify these as symptoms that would need further investigation. You don't need to know all the symptoms. You don't need to know what to do in the situation. But if you recognize them, then at least it makes that patient or the, the patient's parents or the athlete's parents aware of it, that this is something that we need to delve into a little bit further then you can make the appropriate referral on to whether that being to their doctor or to a consultant or whoever but it can at least start that ball rolling and it, I don't think that there should be a sort of hierarchy that you think oh this is above me or someone else will have explored this and they may have explored it and if they have that's great that's fine but I think it's really important that we all are aware of these signs of symptoms so that we can start making people patients and athletes more aware of them. That's lovely. It's lovely to hear you saying that. It's a message which is kind of amplified by a lot of our guests. And and for sports massage therapists out there, they're probably kings of imposter syndromes. This once again is an example where probably these people who are feeling low energy, disgruntled because their life is falling apart around them. And we'll look later at some of the psychosocial aspects of like not being able to maintain relationships or go out with people and celebrate they're probably going to come for a massage. You know, yeah. you might be the first person they come and see. And also because you've got that primal grooming touch kind of empathy going on and they're taking their clothes up in front of you, they're open to this conversation. So whereas a GP might go, how's your menstrual cycle? Go, yeah, it's fine, thanks. What are you doing? Yeah. In that environment, it's like, I just want to go. But when you're like, when they're lying down there and already you've got that contact, you yeah. have a human touch to open up that dialogue. Then you say, just have interest, you know, you've had a few touch I think it's I think yeah. it's correct because I think that in talking about these types of things can can make someone feel vulnerable and can make them feel 
a bit self-conscious and things but if you're already if you've already got a good rapport with someone then you're you've got a better opportunity to actually have these conversations and have those more intimate kind of conversations that may make people feel uncomfortable that they may feel more comfortable after they may feel uncomfortable at the time and you may even feel uncomfortable especially asking them initially to the first few patients who who you see in that situation but it will become more normal and if we if we all get used to as a as a client or as a patient or as an athlete as a as a therapist if we all get more used to having these conversations then it becomes less of a bigger deal um so i think yeah i think it's really important that any level anyone should be being able to ask these questions even so far as being able to ask your teammates or your friends do they have the, any of these symptoms because it, it doesn't have to be also someone who is an athlete who you could perceive as a high level athlete it can be an Olympian or it can be someone at a grassroots level or it can just be someone who goes to the gym regularly. If they're not getting enough energy in for how much they're training, then they're going to cause an imbalance in their body. And they may not be aware of that as a sign of symptoms. I think it was particularly prevalent during things like lockdown when people didn't have much time to do other things other than just exercise. And there was a lot of heightened exercise and a lot of push for people to be really healthy, which is great. Um, and especially with now, which is a bit of a touchy subject, I think, but especially now with menus having uh, calories all over them that can be quite an unnerving thing for people to to go through in a day-to-day situation so it doesn't have to be that your your typical athlete that you're looking at or an elite athlete that you're looking at it could just be someone who does regularly exercise and isn't getting enough calories in or enough energy in for how much they're training um so i think it's it's important for everyone and it's important for everyone as therapists as at, at any level to be aware of if not more at therapy level rather than just also consultant level because if they're a consultant level they've already gone through the ranks to kind of get into that system anyway Great. so we need Great. to identify earlier very no it's, 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 it's such an important message for people i really appreciate you sharing this so let's bring up for people who um are not aware we'll make sure these links go into the notes but there's a couple of papers here um, which lucy did for uh, masters um, there's one here. I'm not sure which order they came. I was going to ask you actually, but there's insufficient knowledge and, and inappropriate physiotherapy. Wasn't it? Well, it's spelled inappropriate. Wrong. Do you know what Mark Road is that? You realise inappropriate spelled wrong. Can't change that now. <laughs> In a, insufficient knowledge and inappropriate physiotherapy management of relative energy deficiency in sport. Reds or red S in lightweight rowers. We'll talk about rowing and why that's particularly susceptible as a sport to this phenomenon. Um, and that involved you putting out posters, I saw it on your Twitter feed. Physiotherapists who work with lightweight rowers needed a telephone interview. So it was all these papers all done based on interviews over the telephone. Mm-hmm. And then there was also one, I'll come back to that, um, there is lightweight rowers' perspectives of living with relative energy deficiency in sport redness. These are all available online. If you fish around, you'll probably find the full text. Um, otherwise, if you can't find the full text, give me a shout. And that one also involved this time uh, telephone conversations with um, actual lightweight rowers, um, as shown on the poster there. Um, and it all kind of sparks from, let's just talk a little bit about lightweight rowing. Um, and for people who aren't aware that there even was a lightweight rowing, I've got a few photos here. I'm just bringing up the people who have joined us. I'm, I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that one of these in here is you. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, number three. Yes. Yeah, excellent. I got it right. Yeah. So those, <laughs> those who listen to the podcast, you can't see this, but you might want to jump along to YouTube if you're interested in seeing the photos. So, yeah, what was the obviously there? Tell me what's going on in that photo, and that is an example of lightweight rowing. Is it? Yes, well, that is a lightweight rowing boat, and that is the boat that we then named Hangry afterwards. Um, so, in lightweight rowing, um, there is there's men and women. So, a lot of rowers typically you see as being very tall uh, rowers. That they're considered heavyweight rowers. There's no weight limit on them competing. For a lightweight rower for a woman in the summer season, 
at international competition, they need to have a crew average of 57 kilos and a maximum that they can be individually is 59 kilos. Um, and for a male, their crew average is 70 kilos and the maximum for the male, it can be individually 72 kilos. Um, so individually, you all have to weigh in two hours before you actually race. And that weigh in is obviously on the day of racing. So different things like boxing where you can weigh in like the day before. Um, we have to weigh in two hours before every competition. And if you don't make weight, you don't race. It's as simple as that. And you have to be the crew average has to be 57. If it's above it, it you don't race. Um, so there's quite a lot of pressure building up to the competition in the last few weeks and obviously building up actually on the day of racing of making weight um, because there's a lot of stress that's gone into the situation, whether that's physical, emotional, the time you've given up for the training. Um, we at the time, we, we were all, these are my best friends. We've trained together. We lived together. Everything we did was together. We wanted to win so badly for each other that literally we would have done anything to make sure we made that weight. So there was a lot of pressure on sweating down before weighing in. So wearing bin bags over clothes, wearing lots and lots of clothes, going on a bike, sweating out for up to half an hour before you actually weigh in. And this is before you've done your racing for the day. So you, you're already fatiguing your body. And one of my teammates, um, I'm sure she won't mind me mentioning, I won't mention her name, but she, before weighing in on one of the days of racing, uh, this was actually for um, a trial for the for, for GB. She was... Um, getting in a sweat bath at like 4am in the morning. So, you know, before even getting up for the day, we were sharing a hotel room and she was getting into a bath and sweating herself, sweating herself out and just trying to make weight as much as she could. Um, so really dehydrating your body. And then you've only got a two hour window and actually when you need to try and actually then fuel back up for your for your day of racing. Um, and so it's not really an optimal amount of time because you don't really want to be eating an hour before racing because otherwise you're just going to feel sick. Because <laughs> If you're exerting yourself physically that much, you're just going to feel unwell. Um, so that's lightweight rowing. So initially lightweight rowing started, um, well, it's, at, it's, it's going to actually be taken out of the Paris 2024 Olympics, but it's still going to be seen at national level and um, at some world championships as far as I'm aware. So at national level, it's definitely still there. And at lower level, it's still there, but it's it's going to be taken out of the 2024 Olympics, supposedly because of lack of funding and lack of support. Um, but initially, it, it started that men were initially first introduced to lightweight rowing. And that was in 1974, I believe. And then women in 1985. So women were a little bit later, but it wasn't until the 19, I wrote it down here, 1996 Olympics that actually they started in the Olympics. Uh, but it's been an Olympic sport for many years. And it used to be that you could be in quads and doubles, but it's, and it's reduced it down. So it's now Paris 2024 will be the last time that Lightweight Rowing is in the event. And it's just a doubles event that uh, goes forward. So it's less, there's less opportunities. And I think one of my key things, especially with lightweight rowing, is that I don't want to get rid of lightweight rowing at all because I would never have gone to the races I've gone to. I would never have won the medals I won had there not been a division for lightweight rowing because I'm not a six foot two tall woman and I'm not as strong as some of the heavyweight rowers. Um, so I would not have had the opportunities to go abroad in the same ways that I did unless there was a lightweight rowing division. I just think there needs to be better knowledge and awareness and there just needs to be more education. You wouldn't get a patient or anyone to do a study if you didn't fully inform them on what may happen. And even if you open up a paracetamol side, even if you open up a paracetamol kind of side effects list, they go on forever, but they, at least they tell you what's there. You may not read it. That's up to you. Uh, but at least the information's there. I think at the moment, unfortunately, there's just not enough information out there accessible to those who aren't actively looking for it. So hopefully through conversations like this as well, it's going to become a little bit more easily accessible to everyone. Um, but that is lightweight rowing. That is a, 
And I, I did lottery rowing for my whole time at university. So at my undergrad, I went to Nottingham University initially. So I rowed there three years. I then went to Oxford University. I, I was, in my terms of my weight, I was still a lightweight rower, but I was rowing for the heavyweights at that time. Um, so, But I've always been a I'm smaller, so I've always been a lighter rower. But it wasn't until going into Nottingham until doing my um, actual weigh-ins that I started experiencing some of the, the symptoms of reds and of female athletic triad. Um, so at the time as well, I didn't really speak about some of my symptoms as much because I was one of the lightest of my crew just on, on size and things. I was one of the lighter ones. So I actually ended up taking some weight for, my, for some of my crew members. Um, but in my head, that became quite a psychological thing that it's crew average 57. So it doesn't matter how light I go. The crew average just has to be 57. But in my head, I want it was like a thing for me to just try and get as light as I could. And that, that was like my thing. Everyone spoke about how light I was. So it became a, like an obsession for me to try and see how light I could get. Uh, without realizing there's kind of like any sort of side effects at all and the lightest I remember seeing was like 48 kilos which for me is just not healthy at all um and but at the time I like I didn't really dwell on it it wasn't really a big deal um and again I didn't really discuss any of my symptoms with any of my teammates because I wasn't actually needing to starve myself in the same way that some of them were trying to to try and make the weight so we didn't really discuss me but in terms of myself psychologically I became very obsessed with weighing myself very obsessed with tracking my calories tracking my intake through my fitness pal and things which I deleted off my phone now I do not want to have them anymore but and I think even now like I'm I'm still involved within the rowing scene but now I'm actually a cock so I don't actually have to do any of the hard work myself I'm actually um I'm shouting in the boat so I don't actually have to do any of the physical work but I still have to weigh in so for coxing weight it's different I have to be a minimum weight and there's a minimum weight of 55 kilos uh, but again, initially, once I'd come out of the lightweight rowing world and after having dieted unnecessarily or necessarily in certain situations and had lots of psychological and physical problems with disordered eating and um, lack of period for a year, getting on the scales was a huge thing for me. Like I I was really um, very nervous about getting on the scales. And I think that's something that's quite key to, to note as well is that these symptoms can happen at the time. And whilst I don't suffer with menstrual dysfunction or anything like that anymore there was still a part within my brain that was still very sort of conscious and aware of the side effects that lightweight rowing and weighing in itself and dieting had actually had on me um so I think it's really that's again why I think it's really key that we are aware of the signs and symptoms earlier on so that hopefully they don't progress and kind of manifest itself because I think a lot of people that you, you might see as well as, as therapists you may see a lot of athletes and generally athletes it's, it's well known it's well researched that they have obsessive personality traits they have perfectionism personality traits so they want to be the best at whatever it is they're doing so for me weighing in was just another thing to try and be the best at I was going to be the lightest I could be so that everyone could think oh she's so light and it what there was no advantage to me as a rower um, but it was just another aspect to be obsessed with and to be trying control over so I think it's really important that we identify these symptoms so that people don't try and manifest it in the same way. It's, you mentioned, you mentioned, you touched on it early on then with the dates and when it started. Um, and I think it was from your paper, I read as well, that back in 2002, there was actually a little bit of a movement noted down here. The Programme Commission of the IOC recommended that outside combat sports and weightlifting, there should mm -hmm. not be weight category events. So these people were aware mm -hmm. that by enforcing this advantage of not feeding yourself and being underweight 
then that could lead to health problems. But how come that's not passed down from them through to the actual teams and they're aware of it? How come it kind of doesn't? So I think they, they've tried to make changes because I can't remember I, I can't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure when like we rang initially started for women, I think the weight was actually lighter. So I think it was like 55, 56 kilos. And I think, and it has gone up. So I think they've tried to make changes. And I think in other sports, they've tried to make changes. But changes within the sport haven't necessarily changed how people perceive the symptoms or the signs and symptoms or what they're looking for. And it's all it's all good and well changing, you know, times of weigh-in and things. And if you change it to the day before or whatever, that's fine. That's controlling one aspect of it. But we're not explaining to people why we're actually making any of these changes or what we need to be looking for, symptom-wise or not. Because like, like we say in, in like the papers and things, there is a there is a higher prevalence of uh, reds and female athlete triad within weight dependent sports or um, or sports where there's a kind of a lean aspect that's looked on like cross country and things where there's people talk about there was like a myth many years ago people talk about the lighter you are the faster you'll go um, but it's not just those sports I think it's sport in general because you could you could be competing in I don't know swimming for example which doesn't necessarily have a weighing category um, but you may just still not be getting enough energy in versus how much energy you're pushing out. If you're training three times a day, you need to make sure you're getting enough energy in to cope with all of that. So even though there's been change within sports, I think there's not enough change overall in terms of making people more aware of the signs and symptoms, what to look out for. So they've definitely tried, the people have tried to make change here and there, um, which has definitely helped. And obviously things are always progressing, but it's all still quite new and even 2002 you know it was only until 2014 that there was a made reds was officially made to be a um a, a diagnosis so it's taking a while for things for these sorts of things to become in motion and i think that could be due to lack of funding and things as well um and again because i think i think like, as you mentioned earlier i think sometimes in certain situations we all or some people may presume that someone else will ask this question or someone else may research this and kind of wait for someone else to um so I think that's probably a reason for why it's not filtered out throughout as much sports generally. And I think that I think in an ideal world, this sort of thing would be actually discussed within like PSHE in school, because it's not just like we say athletes. It's it's not just sports specific. It's not lightweight rowing specific. It, can, it could just be a 14 year old person who started to go into the gym and they're not eating enough how much they're training. Or it could be for the parent who's taking their child from netball to swimming to hockey to cricket to this, doing lots of sports, which is great. The child's physically active. They may, be not, they may not be sleeping as, as much, so therefore not recovering as much. Um, so it's also as well as, as the overtraining, there's also under-recovery. And that then also ties into not eating enough for how much they're, they're training. Um, so I think it's, it's something that should be available for everyone, parents and non-sports. I wonder whether, because you're, you're the lightweight rowers' perspectives of living with Reds, um, where you were looking at the, where you did the interviews with the actual rowers, that's like, that's a, that's a novel or a, a BBC drama waiting to happen there because it just reads, it's such as like diary of the lightweight rower, the way that these people are just revealing information. <clears throat> you've got, I'm just going to read out some examples for listeners, but you've got such a, a list of people sharing um, their experiences. You've got, I presume these names have been, yeah, the names are all anonymized. They're all random names. And it's cool because, well, you've got guys, like you say, it's affecting men as well as women. Um, but you had some, someone referred to as Bob, who was saying everyone starved themselves at days when you literally have no food, just like three pieces of toast and caffeine the whole day whilst training three times a day. Um, and then it, it just goes to all these people sharing their information of how hungry and irritated and ill and injured all the time. 
Um, there was somebody which uh, who mentioned that they were taking Senecot, which is yeah. um, a laxative to lose the weight. Um, and it, I'm wondering how much of a shock this would be to a coach or a trainer or the management of a rowing team if they looked at it. Are they going to go, I had no idea this was going on? Or would I it think, be more like, oh, I didn't think it was that bad? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, uh, and I'm not necessarily speaking for all coaches, I'm sure there are coaches who are aware of these signs and symptoms and, and do put things in place to prevent this from happening. Uh, but I think, unfortunately, especially without being stereotypical, especially if there's like an older generation of coaches, this is kind of how it's always been. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, this is just part of the sport, you know, sweating out, weighing in, it's just part of the sport. There were people who would joke about going for colonic irrigation beforehand. So having like their internals like flushed out to kind of make extra weight. People would joke that we would, they would take scissors to weigh in, to cut the hair off, to get any sort of any sort of extra weight loss. Um, I remember my my mum even saying one time, because my teammate had asked her to bring um, a hairdryer to, to weigh in. And my mum was like, oh, she wanted to make herself look nice. And, my, and I was like, no, it's because she wants to get any sweat out of her hair. So it like it's people take it to like the nth degree and that's not considered a normal. That is that is pretty normal. And I think it's it is considered it's maybe something that people kind of joke about, about the extreme lengths that they go to, about how long they sit in saunas for, about how long they're sweating out for. Um, and obviously my work was looking at specifically at rowing. But within the within the research, it was grassroots level. We had people who were just competing locally at local competitions. And then there was there was someone who did who was within the Olympic team. So this is kind of across the whole sort of spectrum. And unfortunately none of it kind of shocked me because a it was things that I'd experienced myself whether it be myself or my teammates we'd all kind of heard about this and I think that unfortunately it's not something that shocks coaches or or teammates or anyone really because again it's it's been considered the norm that is the norm of what you go through and it's normal for the lightweight rowers to be hangry to be angry to be weighing in their food to be eating out of little tiny rice bowls um, and it's normal for girls to lose their period. It's normal for you to start having low concentration. It's just it was just considered normal. And I think, unfortunately, that is generally what a lot of the consensus was, um, is that when we spoke, when I was speaking to so all of the all of my interviews, uh, they were initially, obviously, like to say, that found on Twitter. Um, I put out the poster on Twitter. People then contacted myself and then we set up um, interviews and they were done over the phone. And I think that one of the reasons why I wanted to do it over the phone is because I do think that in certain situations without having like a face-to-face contact, people can sometimes feel like they can get a little bit more off their chest. So people did really open up, up about how they've been to doctors, they've been to physios, they've been to therapists, they've been to their coach and, and said some of these symptoms, but it was all kind of like, well, like what do you expect? Like this is normal when you're putting your body through stress. Um, and that was the kind of the same across the board. So unfortunately I don't think it was something that was very well um it wasn't that, that shocking, <laughs> even though even though to read and as I was actually once actually done the qualitative research and actually uploaded it all and actually transcribed it all, reading it word for word, I think it is quite emotive because actually you realise how common it is and how many people are suffering with these types of symptoms and how we do consider it normal or we just don't talk about it and just ignore it. Definitely. There was something about putting them, even though it wasn't their real names, but putting a name there, people talked about how it was affecting their particular work, how they were doing emails instead of meetings because they knew they couldn't handle being the same as somebody else. They just used yeah. their rag and, and they were so honest. And, and like I say, it's definitely a paper which will give therapists a total eye opener to what your patient or client might be putting up with if they are potentially overjerk themselves and not feeding themselves yeah. and and whilst I wouldn't want to, gen- whilst I wouldn't want to generalise, I think that even though I specifically looked at lightweight rowing, there are blogs and things out there of gymnasts, of jockeys, of ballet dancers 
who have expressed similar, if not the same types of symptoms, whether that be the physical or psychological. Um, and so it's not just lightweight rowers. It's not just athletes in general. It, it can be anyone. And it's just, I think that, like I say, I think just more people need to be aware of these signs and symptoms so that they can recognize what may be going on behind closed doors. Because, and, and I think, as you said earlier, being a therapist, you may be able to get some of the rapport with people like I had with these people over the telephone and actually allowing them to open up because it may be the first time they're able to kind of explain these sorts of situations. And that, you know, in, in a sort of massage situation, you may be talking to people about what they're doing at the weekend. If, and if you're noticing that actually they're not going to work and then, or, or they're, they're avoiding social situations, especially with things like the calories on, um, menus and things at the moment. If they're avoiding those sorts of situations for one reason or another, these are things that we need to be kind of flagging up. Um, so as well as obviously those being symptoms, you know, we need to be looking at REDS in itself. It's low energy availability with high energy expenditure causing problems, whether that be um, through low bone density. So reoccurring stress fractures, reoccurring injuries. Uh, they may have bowel, bladder or bowel problems. They may be having reoccurring just general aches and pains over their bodies. They may be coming back to you for more and more massages. And that's that, you know, it may look great for business and it may be fine for business. But why are they coming back? Is there an underlying reason for why they keep coming back? And if you start delving into some of these questions, it may just help to kind of help them to open up and kind of it may it may be like a bit of Pandora's box. They may you may find that kind of exploded information, but at least then once they've got that off their chest, you can then refer on if they need to, whether they need further blood tests to get further information. Sometimes they may need a DEXA scan, as I noticed in one of my papers earlier as well. There's there was someone who had um osteoporosis from the age of being sort of early 20s. That is something that if if taken too far, it can be irreversible. But if we if we catch it early enough, we can make steps. So you make it reversible. You can work on your vitamin D levels and your calcium levels, uh, but it's all about early identification. So if someone's coming in with pain over bones or different things like this, then we need to be flagging that up as to reason for why. They may not present as having a trauma fracture, but they may have um, a stress fracture that's underlying if they've got pain on bones, for example. It just needs further information and further looking into. There's a question here from Grace I'm going to put on the screen and read out. It links to another photo I'm going to bring up, which will help um, provide an answer to this. So Grace Fielding, thank you for joining us, um, says, is there a strong relationship with being underweight and experiencing race, or is it also being experienced by helping other individuals in the experience? Lucy, great question. Now, before Lucy answers that, this kind of ties in with something which I brought up before. I'm going to share this photo. You can tell me who's in this photo, not the names, but you can tell me when it was taken in that. Um, because I think it's relevant. Let's bring it up on the screen for it okay so you in there in the middle I yes. mean six pack I mean if you listen to podcast here and you want some inspiration um then yeah total uh, you're quite famous that weren't you for your abs <laughs> <laughs> something yeah. else but yeah what was this photo taken and, and what have we got going on there so this was uh, after varsity uh, and that was in my I think that was in my first year so the girls who are in the middle um they were the lightweight rowers. So the girls on the outside, they were considered the heavyweight rowers. So they are typically taller than us. Um, and the ones within the middle are the lightweight rowers. So this was uh, within our first year of doing lightweight rowing. So at this point, we had started tracking calories. We had started trying to weigh in. We were all trying to do um, trials for GB and things. So we were individually trying to make weight. And we were also collectively trying to make weight. So we had bucks competitions coming up. We had other things that we want to do that year, we went to an event called USA, which is the European University Championship. So we were all trying to compete at a high level. 
Um, and typically from looking at us, you might think we all look very healthy, in which from the outside we are. But this I guess- is the thing, because people listening to the podcast can't see this photo, but I mean, we're chatting off air about this. I was saying, this is like, this is sort of photo which you'd think needs to be put out there more. It's showing women who have got muscle, they're defined, they're strong, they're looking powerful. You know, it's not the typical Instagram poses and stuff. It's strong, healthy looking women. This is really interesting because we chatted a bit off air. I'm used to working with runners. And for an endurance runner, if they're overdoing it, you can normally see it because mm. they're not really but endurance running is not the same as resistance of driving through water or kind of loading gymnastics. So you can you you I I'm I'm guilty of seeing it. My biggest kind of symptom if I'm if I'm looking at somebody I'm suspecting, right, you're looking really underweight, that's my mm. segue to it. But these people, if they walk into it's worth looking at this photo if, if you listen to the podcast, go to the YouTube Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel. Because you all look fit and strong yeah. and like but it doesn't tell the truth. Yeah, so even from the out, I think that was that's the key thing is really from from someone walking into your clinic room, um, just on how they present isn't necessarily the full picture of what's going on. In in relative energy efficiency and the female athlete triad, we're not talking about your your considered sort of clinical eating disorder. So whether that's bulimia or anorexia, which in certain situations may may look a little bit more prevalent physically. And as you say, in certain sports and depending on what sort of load bearing they're doing in their joints and within their muscles, they may have different muscle definition. So they so in lightweight rowing, particularly, well, within sports that have a weight weight aspect to them and where you are doing sort of resistance training they may not always look typically um as an underweight person and and looking at me I didn't look underweight um I was light um but I wasn't I didn't look underweight but it was more about what was going on inside so at this point I hadn't had a period for like possibly I can't remember exactly what time of year that is I think it's summertime so I hadn't had a period for at least six months possibly a year um and so that's from the outside, I look healthy. From the inside, my body was screaming other things. I hadn't had a period for a year. I was obsessed with tracking myself. I was weighing myself after every time I went for a wee, after every time I did anything. I was obsessed with tracking my calories. We were obsessed with talking about food. I was, I would also, I think because of the fact that I was a, a, one of the lighter ones from the crew as well, I, from the outside, I didn't need to look like I was um, dieting, but I did it because we were all kind of living together and things as well. So there's kind of like a, a situation that made it feel more prevalent as well um, and then I would kind of get, sometimes in, especially in my first year when we were all living in halls I would then go back to my room and eat a, bar, eat a jar of Nutella because I would like binge on it so I was like starving myself as much as I could and I remember I can't remember who exactly it was but it was one of my teammates and one of my friends who said you know if you're you know if you feel you're hungry it's working and you know that if you're if you're willing to walk to the shops because we all didn't we, at the uni we didn't have cars we all cycled and everywhere so we, I remember them saying, if you are willing to walk to the shop and willing to go to the shop, then you can have a chocolate bar or whatever. But if you're not willing to do that, then you don't deserve it. And it was kind of this whole sort of atmosphere that we all created for ourselves. And it was quite common within rowing or within light rowing, within our, my experience personally, that we we did all kind of do that together. Um, so even like I say, even from the outside, we may look healthy. We may look as though we've got six packs and things, look physically strong. We were physically strong, and I think this is another point that I'll come on to in a moment, uh, but is that the internal side of you may not be quite as strong, whether that's mental, whether it's physical. Um, so, yeah, it's it's not just looking at a patient from the outside and how they present into you. I think it's important to ask these questions across the board. Like I say, it's, it's athlete and non-athlete. It doesn't have to be 
people who are competing at a high level. It doesn't have to be competing at all. It can just be someone who's training and exercising and not getting in enough for how much they are actually exercising for. Um, so I just think it's it's key. Like, like I say, it's key to note that it's not physical all the time. Yeah, massive take-home message, I think, um, especially if you look after runners like myself. That's why I'm making such a deal of it, because you can see guys and, and, and girls who are running lows and overdoing it, that their weight is just, you know, they're like typical kind of faces. Yeah. Back, they're just looking so freaking frail, you know. But with these guys, with other uh, other sports, you're not going to have that. So you can't just go, well, it's really important. You do share in your study. I'm going to bring this up now as well. Let's go with that. This on is the, my summary. Yeah. I can put that onto the main screen, talk us through some of the... There we go. So people listening to podcasts can't see this, but it's really nice um, diagram within the study which breaks down um, some of the effects of restricting caliente. So this was essentially uh, the image that we created from the qualitative study that we did. Um, so this was looking at particularly, obviously, my study was looking at lightweight rowers. So it obviously only is only specific to that one sport. There are there are there is information out there about other types of sports. Um, but what we found was restricting calorie intake for weight loss caused physical implications, whether that be disrupt sleep, decreased performance, bowel disruption, musculoskeletal problems, fatigue, weakened immune system, impaired recovery. So essentially not recovering from the day before or not recovering from injuries as, the, as you would typically expect them to. So if you're seeing them in, in a day-to-day -day situation and they're not typically recovering from even just an ankle sprain as you typically would expect them to, um, this is a symptom that we need to be looking at. Menstrual dysfunction, as we mentioned earlier, that can be anything from irregular periods, not having periods at all. So the physical symptoms and physical implications had been researched, but these were the particular ones that from my research with the qualitative research. So we, I put all my information onto a software called Envivo, in which case we then uh, verbatim went through all of the uh, information that was given to me over the phone and made subcategories from this. And these were the subcategories that came up time and time again on people saying that they were struggling with their sleep. They were struggling with performance. They had problems with their bowels. Um, but that was actually in the research. There was quite a bit of research on that already. What was not in the research was then what we found in uh, the psychological um, side of things. So people were talking about having really low mood, whether that was in a day-to-day -day situation or whether it was within the sports situation. It was also causing a lot of guilt and anxiety around food. So they were not wanting to go out in certain, certain situations. So that was affecting their social situation, reducing their social interaction. That can then affect their relationships. So that could be friends, partners, family. Um, also because of the fact that people may feel pressured within certain situations. Um, this then led on to poor emotional regulation. So essentially people felt they were kind of almost feeling as they were a bit bipolar. They would one day be really happy, one day be really low in mood and no other reason other than the fact that they were cutting weight, which is again, going back to when we jokingly nicknamed and named our boats hangry is that we had, we were angry and hungry. Um, and people kind of think of that as being normal again. And I think one of the things that I like to talk about a lot is that the disordered eating and eating disorder is, are, there is a difference. And I think that particularly in therapy, for therapists, you may not be seeing people, you may be, but you may not see people who are who do have clinical disordered, who, do, who don't have clinical eating disorders, so that's bulimia or anorexia, but they may have disordered eating. So that's the tracking calories, the weighing calories, um, and it's just abnormal behavior, the binge eating. 
Um, all of this then left to people having quite negative self-body image. Um, these left, if, if we left all of these, what we found was that that will then cause long-term implications. There is a bit of research out there already, and I think more is now coming out. The fact that these long-term implications, the physical implications can be that people can struggle with, women can struggle with fertility, men and women can struggle with osteoporosis, so brittle bones uh, from a young age, which like I say, if, if, if it's gone too far, it may be irreversible or it may mean that they are more at risk of fractures throughout their life and they, they are then restricting on certain movements that they can or can't do because of the, the damage they've done when they were younger. And then the psychological implications Whilst there's not enough research, and I would like to do more research onto this in terms of long-term implications, although it can be hard to, to kind of look at the longevity of this, is that even if, you know, I can speak on personal experience myself, is that the psycho psychosocial aspect of the guilt and anxiety, it took me a long time to actually get over not having to weigh food and not having to track calories and not having to weigh myself. And that sort of guilt and anxiety around food stayed with me for a really long time. And like I said, and I didn't actually, in terms of my teammates, I didn't actually need to do any of this. It was, I, it was just an obsessive thing that became in my head. Um, so I think a lot of these problems, physical and psychosocial, are prevalent within a lot of athletes that you may typically see and look to be healthy, but they just may not present at face value. Um, but the, the only way we can find out this information and the only way I was able to find out this information is through qualitative research. So, so it was asking questions. People don't always give out this information. So we have to ask the questions and you don't necessarily have to say, how is your, how are your bowels today? But just starting to have conversations about eating and diet. And if they start talking about tummy ache and different things, that may lead on to conversations about things like bowels. So you don't have to go in straight away with asking about conversations that may make you feel uncomfortable but it's just finding ways that work for you to actually start to bring up some of these subjects. I think something that's also quite key to note is that there's been a lot more research now done about the fact that typically and whilst I mentioned as well you they, a lot of the athletes that I spoke to had decreased um, performance so they had decreased uh, ability to perform well in their sports now what they're actually finding is within terms of like the fight or flight fight or flight mode within the body you may experience athletes who are actually peaking in their sport, but they may still be having relative energy deficiency problems um, because it is relative. It is relative to that person. And I we like to discuss it as in terms of like the same as your phone. If your phone's got low energy, it may go on to low power mode. So you click on to low power mode and then the, the power doesn't go to the, the apps that you're not using as much. So it may switch off the data to the bank or to Facebook, but it may it'll keep all the data open to your Instagram or WhatsApp or whatever, that's essentially what may ha be happening in the body as well as the, the physio physiological problems may be shutting off. So the hormonal cycle may be shutting off within a woman. You may be getting low bone density. These things may be shutting off within the, problem within the body, which may be causing the bowel disruption and different things. And then the other aspect of that is that the body goes into fight or flight mode and thinks, well, I don't need any of this, but I do know that I need to perform physically very well. So it sends more muscle fibers to the area. So actually, some of the athletes you may have you may find have difficult conversations because they say well actually i'm excelling in my sport i'm doing the best i ever have i'm world champion or whatever but fundamentally they may still be having problems going on behind closed doors because the body may have gone into this sort of fight or flight shutdown mode of shutting off sim of shutting off parts of the body that aren't needed and focusing on the ones that are so that may be that they actually may accelerate in their sport so different to kind of what i noted in there is that within the athletes that i looked at particularly in lightweight rowing they did have decreased uh, performance but that may not be the case across the board within all sports they may actually be accelerating and, and exceeding in their sports but may still have some of these symptoms 
So that's kind of just a bit of a segue from <laughs> the symptoms that we did notice. Yeah, that's amazing information. Absolutely uh, brilliant. Um, I'll make sure, I'll try and, uh, well, no, if you go to the paper, then that, that um, image will be on there. It's a wonderful summary, um, which you should all bear in mind. It might be something that you could create your post yourself just to take away the very bit of it, because you could apply that probably to to any like you say to anyone who's experienced yeah and whilst i haven't whilst i personally haven't done the research on it to, to be able to generalize it if, you, if you're looking around at research out that's already in the it, on even on google scholar it doesn't have to be through any sort of specific medical publication if you're looking just generally on google you will find that gymnasts have spoken about things in the same sort of way um ballet dancers have spoken about it in the same sorts of way jockeys it, it's it's across the board and it's not always in the sports that you would typically expect it in either um, so I think that whilst I can't specifically say it can be generalised, I think it's worth noting that it could be generalised. And it doesn't, like I say, it doesn't have to be an athlete or someone who you consider an athlete. It could just be someone who regularly goes to the gym and walks their dog and goes swimming and does lots of other things. They're very physically active, but they may not be getting enough in their body uh, generally. OK, so let's, uh, we've got five minutes. I'm interested. Let's imagine you do have the conversation. You've opened the door. It might be a bit crying or something, but now they're accepting and thinking, right, okay thanks for highlighting this who do i go and see now how do you work it so you're not suddenly working outside your scope of practice who do you refer on to is it like straight the gps first point of call or what can you do so i think initially if you're noticing these signs and symptoms so the main signs and symptoms that we're looking at are if a, if, if a female is talking about irregular periods or missed periods and if male or female are talking about fatigue poor concentration reoccurring injuries, reoccurring illnesses. Um, if they're discussing any of these types of symptoms and you're noticing that they may have low energy availability for how much it's low energy availability for how much they're actually expending, then initially you want to be referring on to the doctor for things like blood tests, possibly a DEXA scan to have a look at their bone density. You can refer to physiotherapists if you know that there is a specific physiotherapist that works within musculoskeletal. They may have a bit more knowledge and awareness than, than someone who's just working purely within like the NHS, for example. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to generalize, but they may, if, if being in more of a sporty environment, if you want, I, I would suggest that from a therapy level, I would refer into, into GP initially. And, and, and you can ask them to, to look at the, you don't have to tell them, the GPs will make their own decision on what they want to investigate. Um, but you may know you, you could just write down that you've noticed these signs and symptoms. You are a bit concerned. Could they refer on further to a sports medicine doctor? Could they refer on for blood tests and things and just make probe them for those sort of those sort of questions? And, and if you do feel out of your out of your depth, then do refer on to I would specifically look for people who are within sporting divisions, because I do think that they generally have a bit more of a, an awareness of this type of thing and will be able to refer on. But from from a foundation level as well, you know, you can ask them to just from first point of call, ask them to to, talk, to get in touch with the nutritionists and things. It doesn't have to be through NHS. And unfortunately, at the moment, because the NHS is such a long waiting list, they may be waiting weeks, years for these sorts of referrals. So it may be worth if you're noticing these symptoms and you're noticing that it's quite prevalent, it may be something that you have to actually discuss with the patient that they may need to go privately for and may need to look at themselves and actually do do the investigation themselves. You've noticed these symptoms. You are very sorry if it wastes any of their time to actually go down this route, but it's worth just exploring to actually rule it out, as well as ruling things in. It's, it's important to rule things out. So if they if they want to get blood tests and things themselves, if they want to pay for DEXA scans, yes, it could end up being quite expensive. 
there are avenues that they can look at maybe through their own sporting areas that they can get sort of funding. But I think initially GP and within then a sporting division, whether that be a sports consultant, a sports physio or whatever, um, don't feel that you have to work outside of your scope of practice or feel that you have to work outside of your your scope of knowledge. But if you're noticing these symptoms, that's a really great thing. And we just need to put pen to paper and make sure that they can that the, the athlete or the, the patient can then take that away with them and also do the information themselves because as much as anything, you've made them aware of the situation. They they don't have to do anything after that, but you've done your job in actually making them aware of the signs and symptoms as well. So refer on where needed, make the patient aware that they can also refer themselves on. Um, and you can if you if you feel if you don't feel that you want to do any of the further investigation yourself, you can leave up to the the patient themselves to actually then do further investigation but as long as you've made them aware again it's for me it's all about informed consent and same with things like smoking we put the information out there for people to about the the harms of it if people still choose to do it that's fine if we're making people aware of the signs and symptoms of what's going on and they don't choose to act on it that's fine we can't force them but we can at least make them aware of the signs and symptoms that that isn't normal so that they can then do the investigation themselves excellent it sounds like we've seen this time and time again it's it's about Forming part of a chain of therapists with a GP, with a nutritionist, people you've you've spoken to maybe, or kind of communicated with via email, who you know on the same page, they're familiar with this kind of stuff. They know your studies, for example, would be a good start. And then, I mean, as a business model, again, it could work both ways because you're throwing people on, and next time they see someone saying, "Oh, you need you need maybe some sports massage," so go to this person. So it's when we look after the patients in a multidisciplinary way it actually can be quite a successful business model because you suddenly get people referring to you if they know that you're aware of these things and it's more holistic it's looking at it Mm. from a bigger picture and it's not just treating the patient that them just being the eighth patient you've seen that day it's actually making them feel as though you're taking an interest within them as a person if they feel more valued they're more likely to also come back so I think it works in terms of like the longevity within yourself, within your business, because they will feel as though they can trust you with things because you're looking out for them in other ways that people may not have in the past. Excellent. Someone's thrown a question in there. I don't know if you've seen it. We've probably do a whole episode on intermittent fasting, but um, kind of a, a lift answer, so a 60 second answer. Let's bring it up, Marco, because um, Marco is here. And he says, is it likely for an athlete who practices intermittent fasting to develop reds if they do not restrict calories and consume all of the calories in a restricted time window? experience with this it's quite popular isn't it amongst yeah intermittent fasting is popular and it can be used very effectively but i think the key thing with this is that taking away the intermittent fasting it's how much they're getting in throughout the day and how much they're getting in around their training it's really important to get in the right amount of fuel within sports so if they're intermittent fasting so they're delaying their breakfast but they shouldn't be doing that every single day for training because they physically that their body will start to shut down another way. So yes, someone who is, in, in summary, yes, it's someone who is, who is intermittent fasting can still experience the symptoms of REDS because if they're overall, they're getting not enough energy in versus how much they're putting out, even if they're eating within a smaller window, it's going to cause these problems. Great question, Marco. Thanks for throwing that one in. Right, well, look, it's nine o'clock. Um, so much fantastic information, Lucy. I really appreciate you giving up your time and sharing all of this. Um, Thank you for having me. No, it's amazing. There's so much information there. Um, For people who want to follow you, I've seen you've got a wonderful Twitter um, uh, feed, which is very simply Lucy Gilbags. Yes. Yes. Um, Definitely having a worth a look through. They're so human. It's really nice just tracking and following your success. It's quite emotional. It's quite motivating and inspirational. Without you, 
trying to do it on purpose. It's just, oh. <laughs> just the best form of inspiration. It's really nice to follow. Also some links to some really interesting stuff. And obviously, like I say, we'll make sure the links to the two studies uh, go into the show notes. And they're a really good read. Um, I really recommend you guys have a look at that. If anyone does struggle to access any of the papers and needs to or wants to, I can obviously send them on if, if they're struggling to access them. That's very kind. So if they put something on Twitter, for example, to you, then you pick it up. And yeah. That's very nice. Yeah, wonderful. Um, so, yeah, great. Um, and what, what have you got in line for the future? So you're not growing, per se, at the moment, but you're telling other people what to do instead. Yes, yeah, so I uh, we are competing at Henley Royal Regatta next week, but I've got the easy. I don't have to do anything physical myself. I am yeah. just uh, I am just coxing, so I'm more just shouting in the boat. Mm-hmm. I did last year when I stopped doing rowing and stopped doing um, rowing as quite competitively. Um, I decided to do a marathon last you year. Did, saw um, that, yeah, yeah. So I'm trying to do a little bit more of other types of, of sports, and I think mm. part of me would like to get into triathlon, but part of me is also terrified of open water. So we'll see if I overcome that. Um, well, who is terrified of open water? I'm usually on top of the water. I don't go into the water. Right, interesting. Um, but then I, I work. I work privately, so I work as a as an MSK physiotherapist, um, mm. and I I am wanting to make. Um, Reds more of an accessible tool for people. So doing things like this is really something that I'm quite passionate about doing in terms of an educational way. Um, so I am going to start kickstarting using my Instagram as well for that. I have I have my own Instagram, but my physio Instagram. I'm starting to try and use that for as well. Fantastic! I definitely want to follow. So you are part of the Physio Fit team, and you're based yes. in which? There's a few of those around the country. Which one are you based at? Kate? So we're in Cheshire. So we're Cheshire. in up up north, northwest. Um, so yeah, so I've been at Physio Fit for nearly four years, I think. Yeah, I um, physio feel well worth following. I'm not just saying it because you're part of it, but well worth following on Facebook as well. Some really good information and um, going across the board there. So, yeah, physio fit right up your Facebook page if you listen to um, just that. We'll make sure that goes into the links as well. Right. Um, that's it, people. Thank you so much for joining us. Everyone who came to the live yeah. lounge and joined us. We had quite a few listeners tonight, actually, Lucy. You'd be pleased to know. <laughs> yeah, word got around. Suddenly it's happened <laughs> halfway through. So, people on their phones. Think, oh, this is actually a good one. So, yeah, thank you for that. Um, if you are uh, one of the 3,000 or so who download it, thank you very much for listening to the podcast. We would really appreciate it. Obviously, it's free. It's a video most podcasts. I think some of them are now. But if you could do us um, the – just leave a rating and a review, which is free as well, because it just helps the great word of our guests get out there. Every time you put a review or a rating down there, then it will appear higher in Google. It's simple as that, especially if you leave a rating on Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts. Um, so if you've got a minute or so, especially on, a, on an iPhone, you sold your soul to that side then then that's great all you've got to do is go into your innate app and just leave a review just put a five then think about how many just put five <laughs> and you will be helping us extremely help get the great work of people like you see all banks out there so please do that now for listening otherwise um if you'd like to join us next week there'll be um another um guest talking about nutrition um so follow us um uk underscore sta um for details on that and if you'd like to Join us live, and all you've got to do is go along to the Sports Web Association YouTube channel at eight o'clock on next Tuesday. And um, Lucy, if you don't press any buttons, we're just going to shut the live lounge down yeah. and say thanks to you afterwards. But thanks Thank again, you. people joining us live. And uh, yeah, thanks to you. Thanks for a great hour. Thank you all for listening. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy.